Welcome to Call It Like I See It, presented by Disruption Now. I'm James Keyes, and in this episode of Call It Like I See It, we're going to discuss some economic trends that are coming into focus and try to figure out what that means as far as what we've been told is a recovery from the downturn we've seen during the coronavirus pandemic. Joining me today is a man who, if you get him on the court, he's trouble. Last week, he messed around and got a triple-double. Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde, you got to tell me, is today a good day? It's a great day, bro. Bringing right. back some good memories. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Bo- both musically and athletically. Hey, there you go, there you go. <laughs> now, we're recording this on September 7th, 2020, and I want to jump right in to our discussion today. Uh, we're several months into the coronavirus-driven economic downturn, and now we're seeing some analysts say that there's actually a real recession still on the horizon. <laughs> Atunde, what's your take on this idea of a looming real recession? Um, I, I think it's a real possibility. I mean, oh my goodness. It's, it's interesting. We're in a recession now, so that's why I do find it interesting that they say we have a looming recession within the recession. Correct. Um, so that's, that's why I guess it, it is a, it, it kind of, Startles me a bit when I when I try and answer it because you know first you got to get a, your head around what the initial recession is and what caused it and everything like and we all know you know obviously we've had a global pandemic immediate stoppage of 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 kind of not only business but capital flow more to say uh, globally uh, so that clearly led to a recession that we've been living in um, and now I guess what we're discussing is the potential for another leg down. From here, yeah, um, which seems pretty scary. Um, and, well, and the thought—the thought being, just real quick, I'll let you keep going, uh, but that we haven't reached bottom. <laughs> like yeah. we think we're we we feel like we've or we you know like we've been led to believe and we feel like that there's been a bottom and then we've been pushing back up. But now they're saying no, 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 no. This that that may not have been the bottom. And some of the things they're talking about is is the increasing number of layoffs that have gone from temporary to permanent. Um, increasing numbers of men who have lost jobs um, and the rising rate of long-term employment, a couple of things that they've, they've noted. But go ahead, please. Yeah, no, I think um, it's all valid stuff. And, and it reminds me, as you're saying it, it's, it's kind of like the, the virus itself. Um, I think what we're caught in as well is this, like there's so many talking heads, and I don't just mean like the traditional kind of cable news talking heads that we think of, um, you know, the, the financial media is its own e- ecosystem. So you've True. got the CNBCs, the Bloomberg televisions, that all these different outlets trying to forecast almost like, um, you know, like like literally like betting on a horse. Um, you know, it's almost like watching ESPN or something or like when people talk about the the what they think is going to happen in the next game or the yeah. next playoff series. And that's how people, you know, they're, they're armchair quarterbacking the economy. And I think just like, uh, you know, the medical and scientific community, let's say, is armchair quarterbacking, the, you know, the, the virus in a sense, you know, it's kind of learning as we go. And um, similar to the virus, uh, there's historical um, um, precedent in certain areas with with the economy. Uh, but then there's others where it's just it's, it's a novel economic situation, just like it's a novel virus. You know, this is a new thing. For the modern world, which is so interconnected, uh, obviously the most interconnected that humans have ever been with the largest world population in history, right? We have 8 yeah. billion people. And so to, to have everything literally stop in March 
through April uh, is unprecedented. And so what, what the Federal Reserve did, our central bank, was uh, print you know somewhere to the order of four to five trillion dollars starting in March uh, to flood the economy to plug the hole that was left by the lack of flow of capital and the lack of business activity. And so that seems to have been effective in staving off you know a, a 1930s style depression. And I think what we're talking about is that, so far. That, that is, what we're talking about is whether it staved it off so correct. far. And, like and if there's I, still worse to come, then. It may have been a drop in the bucket for all we want, but go ahead because I want to jump yeah, in real quick. No, and, and and I mean that's why this is unknown because we don't know if if how much worse or not it gets. And then the other thing is is that we're really at the mercy of policymakers. Uh, I would say more so than in our lifetimes we've seen, right? Because if the policymakers, meaning people in charge, right, the administration, uh, the Senate. The Congress, the the, um, the the Federal Reserve Board, if they decide to continue what they call a stimulative policy, which is continuing the unemployment benefits, continuing to you know buy corporate bonds, you know do all the stuff that they're doing to keep liquidity out there and to keep money flowing, then we probably will see a continuing of what we've seen the last few months, which is things kind of slowly recover, and and we don't have much more pain than we've had. Um, I think if policymakers decide not to continue these stimulative efforts, uh, it could get very painful. And I think that's where it's just, we're at this inflection point where that, like we're talking about, if certain things come to pass, we could see a lot of worse situation that we've seen. Um, and I think the other thing, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get off my high horse here, it is at least in my lifetime, this is the f- most bifurcated recession I've ever seen. Well, let's let's, we have, let's get into uh, that though separately because yeah. I want to give an initial uh, reaction too. Okay, um, like I think that if you zoom out and I'll do my best Tune Day impression and, and zoom out and do look at it from thirty thousand feet, um, what the coronavirus caused was almost like a demand crisis, but it was industry specific. So industries like retail, things that could happen, they had to adjust in order to make sure they could still deliver the goods, for example, um, to people, get things to people. So whether it be more delivery, things like that, but people still needed to buy bread or paper towels or whatever. And so it, those type of industries didn't face, so their workers were able to relatively stay employed and things like that. But certain industries were just wiped out completely, um, whether it be you know a lot of dining stuff, um, you know, entertainment, hospitality, things like that. Like th- Those things just shut down and they've still been very much so uh, operating at minimal, minimal capacity, things like that. Um, like even right now, you got this NBA season going on and there's no fans that are at the games, you know, in, in person that are paying money. Um, and teams make, for example, and those, this is easier to talk about just because these things are oftentimes public, but some NBA teams will make $3 billion a game. And it's not just the teams, then it's all the vendors and it's all the, everybody in that ecosystem is getting paid. So you that spigot basically in many instances has been shut off. For entire industries. And so you have this, then so all of the people who work in those industries no longer have money to spend. So that ripples through the economy. Um, so when you have this, this, then that creates the demand crisis. So they're, they're people aren't requiring, or, or excuse me, aren't able to buy things to the extent they were able to, which makes people who are in the business of selling things to people constricted. And then it, on top of that, there's these industries that the businesses just you know, can't exist anymore. They can't exist in their current form. So 
yeah, they, they, the government putting money in everybody's pocket so they can continue to spend the money helps try to supplement that and make it so that there's at least still enough people spending money that all the businesses don't go under. Um, there was, and, and then the, the, like things like paycheck protection was supposed to say, hey, in these industries where you don't have customers anymore, we'll pay your employee salaries, just don't fire them. But so you look at all that and you say all of that stuff from a conceptual standpoint was only meant to be temporary. Like it, it, it wasn't meant to be ongoing. So it makes sense to me that, Hey, at a certain point, these things need to come back online or else we're going to fall off a cliff. And so it, to me, it made a lot of sense because the thing, when we were in March and April, the whole thing was, man, if we can just get to, to June and July, then things will come back on. And this, we, we will have plugged the, 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 the holes in the dam until the you know everything's shored itself back up but that never happened and we still don't see an end to the pandemic so what i'm saying basically is that the longer the 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 pandemic um the the effects on businesses on whole industries as long as that is is indefinite and we can't even see an end to it we always have this looming threat of going off a cliff like you said if policymakers don't make up for the difference in the economic activity that's not happening so that was that's what stood out to me about that. Now, yeah, the, the bifurcated nature, I'll let you get into that because that is underlying this also. That's happening at the same time in terms of 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 the the, the businesses that are doing well or the type of people that are doing well during our quasi recovery or at least our 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 bridge to stop from falling off a cliff. Like that's been definitely bifurcated. So go ahead and, and I know you wanted to jump into that. Yeah, no. So the bifurcation is really about, you know, which industries that you alluded to it, which industries got hit um, harder and which um, I think are relatively surprising. I mean, looking back, I, I personally, I thought we'd be in a depression right now, much worse than we've been in. Um, and I'm somebody who wouldn't have assumed that uh, some of the big tech companies would have immediately, you know, pivoted and, and, and figured out how to still be profitable and continue to, to grow. Um, and so that's an example of the industries that benefited from this, um, you know, millions of people around the world. And again, maybe focusing more on our country, um, millions of people that are now sitting at home that are uh, consuming online more, um, that are using online services more. So things like Zoom, um, things like Peloton, for example, uh, was a, the, the exercise bike. Uh, company. Uh, they're an example of a company that skyrocketed uh, after this because why? Gyms were shut down for two months. So people with means were able to just invest in a Peloton when they maybe didn't have a reason to before. So that's an example of certain industries that saw growth. I mean, if we think back to the most recent real economic downturn we had, which was the, the, the 10 to 12 year ago period of the Great Recession, I mean, that was led by the financial sector and by real estate and mortgages and housing and all that. But in the end, it kind of took the whole system down with it for a short period of time, for a few years. So it's like, I remember everybody was in pain at that point. Um, and if you look now, uh, there's some people doing absolutely great. Um, and there's a lot of people that aren't. And it's just interesting, the bifurcation. And I think folks in the service industry, attorneys, accountants, that type of industry also is able to work remotely. And so they may not have seen such a hit to their activity as certain others so that's you know that's what but makes those it are, but those are the industries though that if there is a sec if there is if the cliff comes because if you're yeah you're a service professional like a, a high up but you know relatively advanced service professional meaning you can sit on your computer and do work at home it still requires that the people who are paying you 
have business. Like they need to be making money in order to continue to pay you. So that those are those secondary things that if once one domino falls, then all these other dominoes fall as well. And yeah, I, I thought you were going to go a different direction with the bifurcation because uh, I know we had also looked at how during this downturn, um, you've had for, for Americans of, of the, that are, are wealthier, they've been paying down more debt. You know, they've been doing well. They've been able to save more money. They've been able to, 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 to reduce their debt. They've been able to do all the things as if the economy was going great. Um, and so, and that is different than 20, 2008, for example, when you had this downturn and it was the, the people at the top, basically, that sunk the ship and everybody went down with them. In this case, it wasn't anyone's fault, per se. It was an external event that created the strain. Um, but the strain kind of came in and took out, instead of taking off 30% from everyone, it took 100% off of some people and then 2% off of other people. And then the, some of that money got redirected to other people. So they did even better. Amazon, you know, has never been, never been doing better. You know, Costco, you know, like these the places like that, they've never been doing better. And so uh, and, and you would have to, to think that a lot of the money that's not being spent on hotels or on restaurants, you know, eating out is being spent at these places, you know, so yeah. it's redirecting it. But either way, I say all that to say that the bifurcation I thought you were talking about was that actually some businesses and and and, and, and in many cases it's summed up in this way, but it's not this easy per se. But a lot of in a lot of cases, the wealthy or, or some of the wealthier people in certain industries, at least, have done very well right now. Whereas you, at the same time, you have people with record savings, you know, people of, of, the, of you know, the, the, the top one percent or whatever, they'll have record savings paying down debt at a, at, at, at a above average rate. And then the people on the other end of the spectrum can't afford food, can't afford rent. And they're like, hey, we got to we, we need the government to step in to stop people from evicting us. Like, it's that serious. So yeah. that bifur that level of bifurcation. And again, I don't know. You, you, that's something that, that would not seem to, that can exist in perpetuity. Like, that seems like something that we need to address as a society, because we're going to end up in a situation where people are no longer going to buy into the system if that's the results you get. Like those are those extreme results you get in completely unfettered capitalism where you end up with, you know, five people with all the money and everybody else is a surf, basically. Well, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. Um, <laughs> no, I no think, I'm not suggesting we're think, there yet. Um, no, well, I think though what we're seeing is, I mean, look, the reality is the veneer of um, our propaganda to ourselves about how, uh, much equality we have uh, financially, I'm talking now, as a nation, um, has always been, um, you know, that's always been kind of a, a really just self-propaganda. We've always had a huge disparity in this country for most of our country's history. Um, you know, that, that gap probably came in to its tightest uh, between the haves and have-nots, you know, post-World War II, post-New Deal, for yeah. a few decades, but then by the seventies, it started bifurcating again, and that was, going the it, directions has been. That was the exception, um, actually. That's it's hard yeah, for us to so conceive that because we look back at that like, oh, that's well, people like myself look back at that, like, oh, we should try to get to that. Um, but yeah, that it, when you look at the big picture, that's like yeah, that's, I mean, that's the exception. You look at world. our history from seventeen ninety to nineteen, you know, forty. I mean, we pretty much were no different than most third world countries. You know, a very small concentrated group at the top with a lot of wealth, um, maybe a little bit of an outer band of a, some sort of middle class, and then a lot of- Service more, professionals, yeah, attorneys, a, doctors, yeah. those were your, your middle class. People who had 
marketable skill. That's been society, human society. If you go back 500 years, instead of a, 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 a doctor that might be the middle class, it would be the blacksmith. It would be the guy who had a skill that translated into value. It's always, when you're talking that bifurcation, generally speaking, you're talking about the level that unskilled work can, be, can, can exceed a level of sustenance. You know, either get to a level of sustenance or exceed a level of sustenance. But I'm not going to take us down that level of economic theory. I just wanted well, to kind of point the, out the that. point I'm making here for us on this conversation is what we're seeing here is is really just a you know the the, the veneer got peeled off real fast so everybody can see what's going on in a different way. But it doesn't mean it has not been going on. You know, it's it's, it's yeah. you know, I was cleaning my garage the other day and I lifted up something and it was nasty because there was a million. Look like some 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 breed of insect laid a million eggs, <laughs> and now I gotta see it, right? And it was gross. But had I not picked it up, doesn't mean that stuff wasn't under there, right? Yeah. And so that's what I mean by our economy. I saw a stat a few months ago, which was interesting, which just reminded me of the eighty twenty rule um, in life, and it was it was close to that. It said that um, uh, about twenty uh, percent of the of Americans own eighty four percent of the capital. And so that my brain flipped and said, okay, that means that the, the bottom 80% of people in this country are stuck sharing 16% of the capital. And so what, what that, when I saw that stat, because that was just a few months ago after the pandemic had started, um, it made me realize why this stuff, people keep thinking there's a dislocation between the stock market and the real economy and all that. And I thought, okay, well, that's it is because most of the assets are being held by that 20% <laughs> and that 20% is doing okay. And that's all and, they care. Yeah, they, and, they're, and they're happy. Well, it's, it's not as much as a carrying. I think it's just the system is set up that it's just going to carry on without that, unfortunately, without too much participation of the 80%. And I think what I mean when I say the veneer is ripped off is, you know, our, our society has been going that way for a long time. It's, it's not like if five years ago, this was so much different. The bottom 80% still own only 16% of the capital, which means they, they weren't contributing as much to the economic engine. Doesn't mean they're not as valuable as human beings. It doesn't mean anything like that. I'm just saying from a No, state, that's not what that when, means, man. When, they're contributing. Um, they're no, contributing people, something different. They're contributing labor by and large. Well, not I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not questioning that. Well, I'm just talking about when people say, how is it that, you know, we can have this happen to our, our system and it, besides the government stimulus angle of it, right. That we aren't in some kind of deep depression. Um, a lot of it is because it, there is capital out there is just it's just uh, bifurcated differently and i saw an interesting stat that in july you mean dis um, distributed differently yeah I mean, meaning, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's that's what i mean if if 20 percent of the population has 84 percent of the assets it is distributed not evenly right so Correct. so that means that if 20 percent can continue to kind of um capital can flow within that 20 percent 80 percent of the capital i mean it's still you're not going to have as much of a blip in the system as you would had capital been shared more evenly. Well, but that's, um, let me, let me, let me, because there's a lot of assumptions in your statement that I want to at least point out. Um, one is that the reason for that, by the way, is that capital is easier to organize than labor is. And so therefore capital is much more, or is much better equipped to be collaborative in their ways to maximize their advantage relative to labor. Labor is easy to, to, uh, turn against each other, you know, like the, the biggest 
of all time, you know, in America has always been turning black labor and white labor against each other, or more so turning white labor against black labor, even though it's not in their financial interest. But so that's, so labor is hard to organize. Capital is easy to organize relatively, at least since, you know, like capital, I would say was hard to organize if you go back 500 years when you had to move gold literally in a wagon <laughs> drawn by horses and thieves and stuff like that would be popping out of the woods and stuff like that. So Robin Hood come in and steal it. Like capital was hard to organize back then. But now you push a button on the computer and it's from one bank account to the other. That's, so needless to say, and then corporations are organized capital. That's what they are as a, by de- definition. Um, and so there's that. But also, and then partially because of this, we have to recognize, and this is the, the bigger assumption that I think is implicit in what you're saying, but I just want to, again, point it out that the, the capital class and the wealth are creating the metrics by which we're evaluating economic performance. Like the things you're talking about in terms of, oh, well, this, this, this indicator is, is pointing up. Those are all metrics that are created by that 20% that controls 84% of the, the, the wealth. If we looked at metrics or if we judged the metrics that were that, that judged how the other 80, 80% was doing, then we would, it would paint a different picture. And so just... I, I, what you're saying is true. Just keep in mind, though, that you're, there's an implicit assumption in there because you're using the metrics designed by the 20% to evaluate the performance. History is told by the winner, right? <laughs> I mean, hey, I'm being serious, just, right? If, if no, you're no, in that I, 20%, you're going to create the metrics you're that, gonna create metrics that, that make that sense that, for yeah, you. Exactly. So, I, I'm just saying it's. I just again. I just want to point out that that's an impl- that's implicit in the conversation. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. And and I think look, that's 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 why I think you know it, it's probably not going to be as great or as bad as what some people are are predicting. I just think that you know the there there is a certain resiliency to the the domestic and global economies um, because I think. You know, there, there's a lot of it's like it's like the entropy and the creative destruction of capitalism, which is a good and a bad thing at the same time. Sometimes, you know, this this comes out of left field like a hurricane. And, you know, there's there's Lord and Taylor. There's you know, there's there's budget rent a car. There's there's all these companies that, you know, go the way of the dinosaur. And but then there's others like we talked about with the Pelotons and certain others that um this is their moment that, that, that without this, you know, a, a company like Zoom, let's say, may have taken another 10, 15 years to get where they got in, in the last three months. Um, it's interesting. They just, Zoom is just an interesting example. They just came out with their second quarter numbers. They made as much revenue in the second quarter as they did for the whole year of 2019. So, you know, that's why I think that this will probably not be uh, as, as bad as maybe the worst predictions only because we can't see where the new innovations and the new technologies that are going to come out of some of these things are coming from. And, you know, what I think humanity has shown, which is a great thing is, you know, human beings are resilient and we're going to keep um, just kind of moving and, and kind of, and, and keep a certain level of energy and activity moving forward. So, um, that doesn't mean we can't have a second leg down from here. I'm not trying to say it's a rosy picture without any 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 kind of uh, pitfalls. I'm just saying that even if we do have kind of an, a deepening of the current recessionary environment, we'll still get out of that at some point. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying is that I'm amazed at how resilient we've been. And I think that, the, again, the, the tough thing about figuring this out is we are at the mercy of policymakers, I think more so 
than we have been in prior recessions, at least in my lifetime. So, well, at least to not feel the pain, because we, if, yeah. we if we were okay feeling the pain like they did in the 1930s, then we wouldn't be at the mercy of policymakers, because yeah, well, that can happen too. organically. Yeah, but let me, that, let me jump yeah. in a couple of things. You said something that I believe 100%, and I feel like I've argued with you about in the sense that um, how resilient um, you know the market system and human beings are in the sense that you know, when when something bad happens or when something disruptive happens, while it's happening, we can't see what the solution will be or what new opportunities necessarily or the full extent of the new opportunities that we'll make. I make this argument with respect to automation all the time. Like automation, yes, it does. It's disruptive. It changes the status quo. But we can't say that it's going to be the end of everything because it's going to also create opportunities that we can't see right now. And it's actually for the innovators of society to create those opportunities. The fact that we can't see it is just part of it. Like we're not the innovators. If we could see it, then we'd be in the next class of billionaires, you know? So I, I just wanted to connect that. But also the mercy of policymakers. And I think that and this is just to kind of connect one of the themes that we've hit on a few times also recently. That's why it's so important, actually, why we, when we talk about the disruption or excuse me, the, um, the, the distraction and the manipulation that happens in the media, because the, the way the system is supposed to work is that our policymakers are supposed to be responsive to us, the people, um, the 80 percent also, not just the 20 percent. Uh, the 80 percent who don't who only control 16 percent of the assets because we 80 percent still control 80 percent of the vote. And so they're supposed to be responsive to us. And, and if we are falling off a cliff, even though the 20 percent is still you know living high on the horse, if the 80 percent is falling off a cliff, policymakers are supposed to address that because they can't mess around and anger 80 percent of the vote. Well, if we're all distracted, if we're focused on fairy tales or, or you know, mad at each other for, you know, or ginned up constantly and mad at each other about stuff that doesn't matter, then the government doesn't have to be responsive to us. The government can let us flail and, 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 and anguish because we're too busy, anger, mad at each other and, you know, arguing with each other and t telling each other we're evil and doing all these other things. And that's why it matters so much. We have to not allow ourselves to be distracted if we're going to hold our leadership accountable. Again, this isn't. This is this is supposed to be a republic. We need to hold our members of government accountable. And if they don't, if they're not responsive to our needs, we got to get them out. Because this is where again, it's it's easier to organize dollars than it is to organize people. I mean, there's no racism amongst dollars. Like twenty dollar bills don't discriminate against $50 bills just because they're different. But human beings do that. So when it gets the dollars all they get do into it. They do in my wallet, though. <laughs> you segregate the, your wallet? Yeah, the hundreds and the fifties, you know, no, they tend to congregate to a different side than the ones. You know. <laughs> well, that's you doing it, though. But, you but know, anyway. when, when they're in your bank account, it's all the same. <laughs> it's not, the, the, the $20 bill isn't saying, hey, you can't add me with the, with the, with the $50 bill because... You know, the, I, like I, I'm, I'm better than him. Now, either way, now, my point is that dollars, do, dollars are easy to, 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 to put together and move and work with each other. People are hard to get together and work with each other. And so when you get distraction, when you get manipulation, then it lets our government off the hook to be responsive to our needs. And so that's what we can't have happen. Like we have an election. This is our chance to hold our, our government accountable for, for their actions or inactions. And if we're too busy, again, messing around in fairy tales and things like that, then we don't hold them accountable. The government may come, come short, and but we as citizens have not lived up to our duty as far as holding them accountable. 
No, I mean, look, that's all true. And I think when you have these periods of, of economic and social unrest, it's harder to get the population to focus on some of these long-term um, solutions that would be good for everybody. And it's a lot easier for those at the top, the, the smaller percentage of those with the capital to maintain their focus because that focus or, or the ability to, to, to organize capital is a lot more malleable and fluid, I think, than, than the heavy lifting of organizing you know, kind of the larger, the 80% of the population to well, go a certain direction. Yeah, because what it is is, is the, the discussion on how resources and how the fruits of, of, of labor and the fruits of, of our society should be distributed. You yeah. know, like that's the, that's the, that fight, that fight no, is how those yeah. things should be distributed. That's the large scale. And, and then, that's been forever. Yeah. That's been forever. Yeah. So wanted to, um, also, I mean, we, we wanted to, at a related topic to this, um, and related in the sense that it's another type of, um, almost outcome or, or something that's related to, what we've seen with the coronavirus pandemic is we've seen another trend uh, hit a notable, notable milestone in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. And that is that now the more than half of young adults under 30, you know, adults under 30 are now living at home. Um, and that is due to a lot of different factors, you know, some which have been developing over a very long time and some of which just came really into focus in the past 12 months, um, such as the coronavirus. But either way, it's still a notable milestone to hit. Um, and so, Tatunde, what did you make of this trend? And is this cause for alarm uh, that we don't, that basically um, the birds aren't leaving the nest to the same degree that they have been in the past? Yeah, what I make of this trend, it sucks because I got kids <laughs> living at home. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I do have kids living at home, but it's it's nice having them. You're home. talking um, young adults. Yeah, yeah, children, younger, yeah, kids yeah. in their twenties. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but but it's nice. I'm just joking about that. But what I found though, so I don't, I don't. Again, just like on the topic we just discussed, I don't want to read too much into the future because I think, just like we discussed, when you're in the middle of the storm, you 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 know, we, we tend to not think as humans that things are ever going to change. So obviously, I think that this is an ebb and flow. And what I found fascinating in, in reading up on this one was the comparison to the Great Depression in the 1930s. So we have the highest rate of young adults living with their parents since the late 1930s. Um, and, but it's still per capita a little bit lower than it was back then. And when you look at the charts leading from 1900 to the late 1930s, it's a very similar graph as we see from, let's say, the 80s through now. So it just shows like economic expansion. Um, you know, you got hiring, you got kind of an economic boom. So, so younger people are working, they're making money, they're out of the home, you know, earlier. Um, obviously, whenever there's a recession and a downturn, you know, who's going to have money, a parent in their 40s or the child in their late teens, or early 20s. So normally, the parent in the 40s is already a little bit more established, has a home and all that. So the kid, the kid can't get a job. And the, and the money, you know, the resources aren't there in the economy to, to hire a bunch of young people then it stands to reason that young people will stay at home a little longer. And I think going back to what we alluded to at the start of the show in terms of the bifurcation of the different industries that have gotten hurt uh, within the pandemic here this year in 2020, uh, we have, uh, like we mentioned, the, the leisure industry, hospitality, restaurants, they tend to employ younger workforces anyway. When people are, you know, that's kind of the transient type of job to be a waiter or a bartender when you're younger and you're in school or you're moving around a bit, 
and all that. So um, it stands to reason that, you know, with, with younger folks out of work at a higher percentage than older folks, um, that they'll be back home. So that's why I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't that surprised in it. Um, I think the historical um, uh, allusion and the articles I read to the depression, all that kind of made me feel better that this is, this, this, this most likely is just part of economic trends and ebbs and flows with other statistics we could probably look at. And so this will probably get better at some point when the, when the economy rebounds, you know, like, I mean, really, when there's demand and, and there's job growth again and all that over the, you know, let's say middle to late decade. Um, well, it'll so, still depend on how that is distributed. You know, always, you know, like there, there will be, we will get to a point where there will be more spoils. Um, and, but again, if they're, if they're if the distribution of those spoils is still very concentrated at the top, it won't change as much. You know, that the trends as it's been has been that the, the, the distribution of the, the productivity, so to speak, the growth in productivity has not been shared, um, uh, with the actual workers, uh, as it, has been at again, you know, the blips that post New Deal, it was shared much more with the workers. Normally, you know, in human societies, it hasn't been. Um, but I mean, again, that's that's part of America. That's part of America. Well, I got one more thing too on that is you know. Well, let me let me let me do my initial um, thought on okay. it though, because one of the other things I think that you have to consider a, along with this though is we've also had reports over the years on how the baby boomers. Uh, one, remember that's a huge generation in terms of just raw numbers. Um, but then also how they stayed employed uh, and and basically they've been the ceiling for we've seen it in, in terms of Generation X and then now with millennials as well. Like they're just staying on it's staying in the workforce longer than than prior generations had um, in, in, at least in the same numbers. So that contributes to it. Well, like you said, the the it's easier if you're to, to weather a storm if you're already established than if you're trying to establish yourself. So that is that. But then also, they're just as the millennials have entered the workforce, the opportunities aren't as plentiful as they have been in, his, in in analogous situations in the past because there's so many boomers and there's so many boomers still working. But go ahead. Yeah, no, and I think you're right, especially millennials, because they have the unfortunate uh, issue of the Great Recession 12 years ago when most of them were kind of coming out of college and, and kind of being young adults starting their life. And then of course, a decade later here, we have the pandemic. So, you know, and this is the right time, about, this is the time they would be buying homes. This is the yeah, time. Exactly. So, yeah, well, like that's, that's why the next one I bring up to me, actually to what you're speaking of the buying homes and the two cars in the driveway, the, the thing that I think has hindered that even prior to this was the student debt oh. uh, debacle. Um, you know, even prior to the pandemic, we, we all heard of the issues with students being saddled with so much debt. And, you know, there is an inflection point uh, at some point, you know, I know people that are in their late 30s with literally three, four hundred thousand in student loan debt. And at some point, you know, it wasn't even worth going through all that. Uh, like, are you getting a return on your investment of the education you got for that? I don't know. And, you know, that's what I've thought of, too, because I remember, you know, when I was a kid talking to my mom about buying her first home or things like that. And I've thought about it that. That generation, these millennials, really, um, unfortunately, through through a lot of the student loan debt, their their capital isn't working the way it did in prior generations. So, you know, somebody's paying back two thousand dollars a month in student loans or a thousand a month. You know, prior generations that was going to buy a home, that was going to buy cars, or or or, or you know what we call in our bit in our industry, you know, in the, the financial circles, the velocity of money. 
that that dollar, every dollar that that younger person was spending was, was, was flowing through the economic system and they were buying something or, you know, from a business that had to hire a worker, that that worker got paid, blah, blah, blah. Now, a lot of that money is going to debt repayment. So, well, you know, there's, you there's know, there's not, a way to look at that that's pretty inflammatory. Then um, let me jump in, which I guess I, mm-hmm. since it's relevant, um, you know, because student loan uh, can issue and, and that those payments and stuff like that, that's essentially a wealth transfer from the boomers and the Gen Xers to a, to a lesser degree. Or excuse me, from the from the, the millennials and the Gen Xers to a lesser degree to the boomers. So the boomers are taxing yeah. the, the 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 millennials for their time at school. There, it's a wealth transfer to to the boomers from the millennials. And so, it, what you end up with, if you take again, do doing my my best Tunde impression, if you look at the long arc, um, the greatest generation coming out of World War II with the New Deal, things like that, they set up the boomers to really be able to jump into the economy and really take the bull by the horns. They set them up, you know, like as far as remember, the state uh, college would be free, you know, things like that. And so the boomers come in with this great runway that's set up by the greatest generation. And, and you know, like, whereas the boomers then took that same system and flipped it so that they're preying on the Xers, Generation Xers, and the Millennials. And so it's, again, that's kind of inflammatory, uh, but I'm, I'm just looking at well, what, how it's happening. I'm not necessarily assigning value the value judgments to it, but it's pretty interesting when you look at that because the things that are being done to the young adults right now were not done to the young adults 50 years ago. You know, well, it's, it was, it's the inverse. It's, 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 you know, it's an interesting point you make because it's inflammatory, but yet it is, it, like you said, it's not unrealistic. So, what you're, what you're really saying, and let me break it down for the audience, um, because through, through the ownership of capital, by, by forcing younger people to borrow money, that feeds the coffers of financial institutions, the large banks, insurance companies, all that, that are, that are out there lending this money to students. Um, and also, sub, at, at a lot of times, subsidized by government-backed guarantees. So taxpayers, so, so Correct. So, so the financial institutions... Um, have this large windfall, right? Let's say there's, we know that there's well over a trillion dollars in student loan debt. I don't know, let's say the average interest rate is 5%. You know, that's, per that's year. yeah, that's <laughs> 50 billion per year in revenue for, um, for some institutions, right? For, for, for a, a, a sliver of the corporate sector, right? So let's say there's maybe a couple dozen financial institutions, if that, right? There might even be less than that. That are cutting up that that interest income. Who owns the capital? Most of the time is the older generation. So the older generation owns the stocks and the bonds of these financial services companies that are lending to the students. So that's just breaking down what yeah. you mean by the older generation, the baby boom taking advantage. Well, I don't say take advantage, like because again, well, this praying, is I, whether it's taking well, advantage, they're preying on them. And the, well, I think the but, point of distinction, though, I mean, that you have to make is that. They did, they weren't subject to that is really the point I'm making. Like, the, no, I get the, it, but yeah. let me finish here because you, you use of language is very important, and yeah. I think that this is where I think sometimes when you talk like the way you're talking, um, the point can get lost because yeah. when you use the word praying, um, I think that the the thing we got to look at is you and I could see it like that, but most baby boomers, you know, let's say a 65 year old person right now that just has money in their portfolio being managed by a guy like me that's got them in Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, they don't understand that relationship. You see what I'm saying? 
So it's, 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 that's why it's just part of our ecosystem, not to say it's right or wrong, but, but, and I think that goes back to your point about the going back to organized labor, even it's hard to get everyone to see all this stuff on the same page because everyone has skin in the game, but a bit different that baby boomer in their mind, they're saying, shoot, I need my money in those stocks. because I'm getting dividends and this is helping me maintain my lifestyle where the younger person, you know, to the point we're making is saying, I can't even start my life because I'm saddled with all this debt that everybody told me I need to get into to go get a degree and all this. And now we're in a recession. I don't even have a job. Well, hold so, on, though, because but you, what you're saying, though, is an admission to that, though. I'm not saying praying could be having you're saying it has a negative connotation. I'm saying I'm trying to say it with a neutral con- connotation. I'm saying that in your words, like the 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 65 year old has the stuff in their portfolio and they just want to maintain their lifestyle. And I'm saying that, yeah, that's that's accurate. And they're OK maintaining their lifestyle on the backs of Extra generation Xers. No, and what money. I'm saying is they most stockholders, like regular folks that got money in portfolio, don't see that connection. That's what I'm saying. And it comes down to all industries, right? It's like they own Exxon and don't necessarily see the connection of, you know, the fossil fuels and what that does to the environment. So um, you know, that's why this is. And then is just you get into example. indexing and stuff and it becomes yeah, even exactly. more. You got yeah. mutual funds in your in your um in your four oh one K, the average worker, they got no idea what companies are in the underlying funds and yeah. all this money is just so I, that's what I'm just saying. But there is definitely um, distance. I'm not saying that this is like the monopoly money guy sitting there stroking his mustache laughing. <laughs> I'm just pointing out that that's what actually is happening. I so, just yes. want to be that guy because I want to wear a monocle. <laughs> but, but no, but I wanted to say too is on your point, um, because this is how it goes back to going back to some of the stuff you've alluded to about how our system is different than what once was maybe 60, 70, 80 years ago. Which we acknowledge where, was an exception. You know, we acknowledge yeah, that that's an exception, yeah. Because remember, money's got to come from somewhere, right, to run stuff. And and it's either going to come government, private sector, whatever, but it's got to come from somewhere. So what, what we've exchanged, too, is the idea that the education would be either free or subsidized to education being now a personal expense. Um, so if you look back post-World War II, you had the GI Bill, and at the time you had around 10 million Americans, you know, I'd say from the late 40s through maybe the, the early 60s, mid-60s, so over a, a generation, educated, um, mostly for free. And that's what also kind of made America great, right? You had this whole generation, the, really the, um, uh, the, the greatest generation, the, those that fought in World War II, that came from farms mostly fought in the war and came back and were able to get college educated and, and, and kind of grow themselves to and their kids and, and function in society. And you had this boom of the middle class in the 1950s and all that. So what happens though, is fast forward to let's call it the, the, the eighties through the nineties. Um, it became where the, the government subsidies, the fast for loans, the financial aid, all that kind of stuff started dwindling. Um, and one kid, that's what I mean. I'm but not why here to do make you these just, Why do you reference those things in a passive language? You say language is important. They didn't just start dwindling. Well, Literally, the finish. people who were in power got crossed the bridge and then pulled the bridge up behind themselves. You want to let me finish, bro? That's where <laughs> I, just, I was going. Don't no. use well, passive language, finish. though. It didn't just happen. Well, you got to let me finish. <laughs> then you're going to hear my language because that's what I was going to say. I said that, you know, it's, there's decisions made. So their decision was made, right, to cut taxes generally and cut tax revenue, and then also to change where revenue was allocated. So you you had things like, you know, the Departments of Education, you had state 
uh, education departments, all that defunded over time. Um, and, and that defund the colleges that, that left l- less money in the coffers for public education. Right. Yeah. And, and when yeah. I say public education, a lot of people think of their local elementary school or high school. I'm really meaning it in the, in the higher learning situation, you know, yeah. state universities and all that and all those subsidies. So what happens is now fast forward to, you know, let's call it early two thousands. I mean, that's why it's not about agreeing or disagreeing with what we're saying. It's just looking at the facts. I mean, there's been an explosion in student debt over the last 20 years for a reason. It's because yeah. no one can afford college. Yeah. And why? Because college is unaffordable. Why? Because we don't have the subsidies from states and, and federal government. So, you know, I think that goes back to... Well, and, but and there's another I, piece in there. Let me let me add this in. Um, college be, the Colleges have raised their rates because since the state isn't subsidizing it and beating them saying, hey, stop raising your rates, stop as a large institution. If it's just yeah. individuals, they, they can just raise their rates and just say, hey, borrow more money. You're well, on, you're, I've seen it So there's too, that too. With my own alma mater, um, where my, my, my daughter went to the same school I went to. And when I went back for her graduation, it's amazing with... Um, you know, schools are now like basically little businesses, you know, and there's yeah. little towns. I mean, you got the, the amount of franchises, the amount of, you know, huge real estate developments and all this stuff going on on campus is massive. And then you've got superstar professors getting paid, you know, low mid six figure salaries. So that's what I mean. They're like Fortune 500 companies now, these, these, these universities. And I'm sure some of it is great and necessary. And it's, you know, uh, if, if you're going to have, you know, teach astrophysics, you want to have the right astronomy department with maybe a, a planetarium and the whole thing. So that's not going to be free. We know that type of stuff costs money. So that might be an example of a good use of maybe capital that needs to be expended and you got to charge students, you know, the, the tuition to, to reimburse that. But then there's other things that aren't necessary. Um, you know, we know, and this could ruffle some feathers and I'm a former NCAA division one uh, athlete, but you know, the amount of money we spend on sports and certain things, you know, doesn't really correlate to education. So, um, you know, there's a lot of areas, I'm sure, of waste we could find in our university system. But I think the reality is we as a society have made the choice that something like education uh, is not to be funded collectively through tax dollars. Let's put it that way. And the decision by policymakers, like it was done in the GI Bill to say, let's make sure that a, a you know, let's make America uh, uh, great again by yeah, well, funding education. Higher correct. Education. Like let's let's yeah. make sure this group of young people, right, this generation here, is fully supported in their educational yeah. endeavors. I mean, that's and that's a choice that the society made post World War II, and it's a choice we have not made um, in decades. And so, and I think that's where you know you hear arguments um, from certain corners of of um, of, of politics, right. I think Elizabeth Warren was one of these type of people that was saying, you know, we should have some system to like just just wipe away the student debt for people. Um, and, and you know, that could be seen as something similar to a GI Bill, right? That you're just helping young people just get over this hurdle of, of this massive debt that's overhanging them and, and kind well, of crippling the pre- them. Yeah, the premise of that is that they've been preyed upon. Like that is the reason, because in the abstract, hey, let's just cancel all this debt doesn't make any sense. But the reason why you have policymakers or, or elected officials, some talking about that, is because their their underlying premise is that this system is not fair to them. So let's let's start over. You know, like let's let's wipe this out because you guys have been duped to paying all this money, borrowing all this money. And one of the things I just want to tell you, um, the it, you have to keep in mind, and I know you know this as an economics guy, though. 
the colleges are not for profit for the most part. So as they increase, charge you more and more and more, they got to spend that money somewhere. So yeah, you, you don't need a planetarium in order to teach um, astronomy, you know, or whatever it's going to be, or, or, but it's, it's nice to have, you know, if you got, you're making all your charging people 30, $40,000 a year, you got to spend that money somewhere. So there's that too. But I mean, your underlying point, I agree with, um, but I just wanted to connect that, that the reason people will say forgive student loans is because they're, they, 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 the premise that they're saying that they're basing that on is that that the system, the way it was set up and making them borrow like that isn't right in the first place. Yeah. And so, and you know, that's why it's interesting is I think at, at the higher level of thought here with this whole conversation from um, start to finish, but definitely this last part on the student debt is, you know, and even as I made the comment about, you know, the certain political ideas about, you know, do you just wipe away the student debt and all this, it's still starting from the wrong place. Yeah. Because we keep trying to address the symptoms of the underlying issues. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the conversation about the GI Bill just, just strikes me as, you know, that's just when our country did things differently, where we try to make decisions from the top down in terms of what do we want as a society collectively. And I think back then it was, we got, you know, due to the war economy, uh, we finally were out of a decade-long depression, and you had all these young people coming back from overseas that kind of needed something to do. And I don't mean that as a joke. I just mean, you know, you got all these young people that, okay, what are we going to do as a society with them? And, and thankfully the decision was made is, you know, let's educate them. Let's, 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 let's get moving here. You know, let's, let's get the society up to speed. Let's compete with Europe and, and, and compete with uh, who the Japanese were, you know, as they rebuild and all that stuff. And, and let's, let's make our country great, you know, in that way. And I think by making the we, people, giving the people the, the tools to be great. Yeah, the resources um, yeah. To, to an education. And I think that's what we're missing in today's world. And that's why, again, this isn't to, to bash any leader right now. I mean, this is, I think, you know, a, a generation or two that America, we, we've been just deficient in what do we want to do with the future, you know, and young people and, you know, how do we want to see this move forward? And, and I'm, I would I'm disagree not, with you. We haven't been deficient. We, we've just taken the decision that what do we want to do with the young people? We want to charge them to go to college and make a ton of and make billions of dollars on interest against them. We want to to lower the funding from from um, infrastructure. We want to make it so they don't get clean water so that we can make more money. We being, you know, the, the older generations have decided that. That stuff, the investing in, in the, the next generations is, is less important than maintaining or trying to, to improve their current, um, their, 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 their way of life, you know? So, no, and I think it's, it's, again, like when you use the word pray, it's interesting and because it's, it's almost like we've been indoctrinated as a society. So our religion now is money. Yes. And so it's, it's cause the way you say it, it's almost like the older generation is sinister and they just look at but I'm not like saying I, it like that. No, I'm just saying it matter of fact. I'm just parsing it out more. Is yeah. that we we live in a society where we've been sold this this kind of idea that as long as there's economic expansion and kind of money inflates, right? Like just just the market goes up, prices of goods go up, and just assets go up over time, then everything will work out and everything's fine. Um, and I guess, you know, again, like you're saying too, I'm not here to make a judgment call on that if it's right or wrong. I think we should just take stock and look and see, is this what we want out of this, right? Do we want to have 
a generation of young people that are so saddled with debt that they can't start their life the way that prior generations, at least in our modern capitalist society of the last hundred years or so, have been able to do. Um, Or in a way, think about it like this. Do we want them to be able to start their life in a way that was proven 50, 60 years ago to be effective? Like it, it was proven to work that if you make those investments that you will create a boom in your society. Yeah. And then, but after it worked, the people that it worked for, unfortunately, decided to not continue to go along that path for, for, for reasons. Like, I'm, it's not that I don't have my value judgments on it. I just think you can have a conversation on what happened without getting into the why it's good or why it's bad. But you have to at least get into what's going on before you can get into why it's bad or why it's good. And so I, at this, this is the first step, you know, like this is what's happening. And then, because you said, like you said, the money has to come from somewhere. So if you're going to maintain a standard of living, that money has to come from somewhere. Right now, in part, that money is coming from the younger generations and that is preventing them from being able to get a foothold in their life the way that earlier generations may have been able to by and large. And that's why we see some of these trends, you know, like coronavirus is definitely contributing to it, but we're also seeing these trends because as you, like you pointed out, as a society, we've decided that uh, investment into, to, to, to giving the, the younger generations the tools to thrive is not important to us as a society based on dollars and cents, based on the way we allocate resources, based on all those things. We've decided other things are more important than that. And so until that mentality changes um, as a society, or until we pull away from our distractions that we have or the manipulations that we have that, we, that we're subject to, then that's what's going to continue. You know, so, I mean, ultimately, I think that's th- this th- these occurrences are ways or opportunities, I should say, to take a larger look at what's actually going on, acknowledge it and then figure out where, you know, where, where each person has to figure out where they come down on that to the extent they're aware of what's going on and then make their decisions uh, holding leadership accountable based on where they think we should come down on that stuff. And that's how it all connects. Ultimately, is you got to know what's going on. Then you got to hold your, 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 your elected officials accountable for what you think they should be doing to address what's going on or to either further support it or to, to try to, to, to change the course. Yeah, I agree, man. Yeah, man. So, um, well, I think we can wrap from there, man. Uh, yeah. You know, we always enjoy uh, trying to get into some of these economic issues because we have, we, 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 I think you and I, it's interesting that in terms of a big picture, uh, we both have a lot of agreement, but some of the other smaller issues or, or details in those, we have disagreement. So it's, it, I think it always makes for an interesting, I always enjoy talking to you at least <laughs> about these things because, you know, I, I appreciate your, your opinions and your, I know you're a thoughtful person with it, uh, but then where we disagree sometimes. And then, but again, I, I, we always seem to have an overall agreement on, because you and I are both fair-minded people, basically, you know, like, so yeah. we can always find common ground in terms of, well, let's try to find a way to be more fair, you know? So, and I mean, it, that doesn't seem that crazy <laughs> to yeah. me, you know, like maybe you know, if, if more of us in society could at least start there, you know, like how can we try to be more fair with each other um, and, and connect effort to outcomes more so, um, I think that would be moving us in a good direction. So, so yeah, until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm tuned to Romana. We appreciate everybody for joining us and uh, subscribe, rate, review, uh, tell us what you think. Uh, give us five stars if you think we warrant it. Check us on Twitter. We drop clips every week at Call It DN, and we'll talk to you next time.